Turn to Exodus chapter 20. If you've got your Bibles with us, we'll move through chapter 20, verse 1 through 14. We continue to walk through the book of Exodus, and today we come to the seventh commandment. Uh, you'll remember that God brought his people out of the slavery in Egypt, but, but you'll also remember he didn't immediately take them to the promised land. He led them into the wilderness. Uh, physically and spiritually speaking, the wilderness is the, the place, the desert place, between bondage and eternal life in perfect peace. The desert is always the place where God trains and shapes us and teaches us to trust him. So the Ten Commandments serve as a moral compass given by God to his people to help us know not only how to love him, but also how to love one another and bear his image. And today we come to this particular commandment, the seventh, which teaches us about the many aspects of marital faithfulness. And here is an example of one way to love one another. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Here's God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray as we open your word that you would meet us in it, that you would accompany the preaching of your word by the help of your spirit so that we who hear would have the ears to hear what your spirit says to your people. And I ask you once again to wield in your hand uh, with mercy and kindness uh, a sinful crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. I was recently talking to a friend about a dangerous hike that he went on with his family. It's called Angel's Landing. It's in Zion National Park in southern Utah. And it ranks as one of the top six most deadly hikes in the country. And, and my friend said it's deadly because people die trying to take pictures while they're doing stupid things. Like the family who moves six inches to the ledge to take a, a selfie. And just an accidental bump or a, or a step backward means a 400-foot drop to your death. 
I went out and read an article on this particular hike, and it said in this article, there is no room on this hike for joking or horsing around. Later in the week, in God's providence, I spoke with another friend, a different conversation. And this friend echoed a a sentiment, and he applied it to this commandment. He said, adultery is, is like one of those dangerous hikes out west. No one ever falls off a cliff without forewarning. People make a lot of choices along the way that ultimately result in a tumble off a cliff. No one falls off a cliff to adultery without many small decisions along the way. So I I think back on my own life as a pastor, and I think, well, probably 90 to 95 percent of the church discipline cases I've faced in the last 15 years of ordained ministry have involved sexual indiscretion at some level. And you might go, well, it's a world that's saturated with sex. That's expe- that's what, that would be expected. 60 years of, of this kind of trend, which would make us think that it's a new problem. A careful study of church history, go back to the churches in Geneva, Switzerland. I'm talking about 20 years under John Calvin, uh, another 40 years after that, 67 years total, between 1542 and 1609. Those church records tell us that 636 men and 538 women were suspended from the church or the sacraments for either sexual perversion, fornication, or adultery, which tells you immediately that it's not a brand new problem. It's not a new issue at all, and no one ever fell off the cliff without many small choices along the way. Each commandment is understood in both the negative summons, avoid this, but also in a positive call, embrace something good and right at the heart level. And so the heart of the seventh commandment teaches us this, that you and I as God's people are to foster or promote a heart of faithfulness and purity. And so this morning, we're just going to cover three points, the marriage intention, the idol distortion, and then thirdly, the idol remedy. We're going to start with the marriage intention. Uh, What did God mean when he originally gave marriage to Adam and Eve? I'm going to borrow here some ideas from Kevin DeYoung, also uh, Ligon Duncan, probably four or five other people. It all blends together, I can't remember. The first four commandments, that first table of the law, is reflected in some sense in the final six commandments. And, And understanding that reflection is crucial to understanding what the Lord is communicating. The first commandment, which teaches us to honor God and serve God as the only God, is also reflected in the fifth commandment, which teaches us to honor and obey our parents. We saw a similar correlation last week when we looked at the command to to forbid murder. That sixth commandment, it is because of the image of God, which is established and played out in the second commandment, that that we find that murder is forbidden because the image of God is in mankind. Whether actions or thoughts or feelings, it's all in murder, an assault against the image of God. Well, the seventh commandment is rooted in the exact same principle. The marriage of one man and one woman is intended to reflect God's image, and it's intended to reflect God's image in complement, in union, and in faithfulness. Those three words are going to shape the portrait of God's marriage intention. And I want to begin simply by showing this to you entirely from Genesis chapter 2. 
You remember in Genesis 2, after God has created everything and he called it good, Chapter 2, verse 18 tells us that there's one thing that is not good. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make for him a helper fit for him. Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, after Adam named all the creatures of the earth, the Bible leaves us with something that sounds a little humorous. There was not found a helper fit for him. In other words, the concept of compliment or fit for Adam is still missing at this point. God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. He took a rib from the side of the man, Genesis 2.22. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then you, you, you have the first song in the scripture as Adam sings for joy and the Lord brings to him the woman. This is at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. She's taken out of man. And so in name, both in Hebrew and in English, her name, woman, is formed from his name, man. And then she's perfectly designed by God to fit as a complement. It's obviously true physically. But God's portrait is greater than anatomy. It's a complement or fit only in the context of unity and faithfulness. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Single man reflects God's image. Single woman reflects God's image. But God brought them together in marital union to add a unique and additional reflection of God's image. As the Trinity holds together Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect complement with each other, so Adam and Eve were to complement. And that's why Genesis 2 adds what you think of as a commentary, as an explanation. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The concept of leaving, cleaving, holding fast is what adds up to the components of unity and faithfulness, to the creation design, fit, complement, is now unity, faithfulness. The marriage intention, God's image, is depicted in those three words, complement, unity, faithfulness. And all of that you get from Genesis chapter 2. Alec Motier says it is for this reason that the offense of adultery disrupts and denies the image of God. Adultery in every sense tells a lie about who God is and what he's made. Now, if you, if you go to the other end of the Old Testament, 1,000 years later, Malachi chapter 2, the last book of the Old Testament, it begins with a really warm reminder that God is a God who loves, that he's a God who is faithful, and then God begins to address point by point various issues which need to be uh, dealt with, matters of the heart in his people. Come to chapter 2, and he says, well, on one hand, there's lots of men who have married foreign women, wives who do not worship Yahweh, and therefore the children are raised in such a way that they don't know the Lord as their Savior. And then he says, on the other hand, there's another problem here. Many of those who did marry women who worship Yahweh have been unfaithful to those women. 
says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, you have been faithless, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them with a portrait of the Spirit, with a portion of, their, of the Spirit in their union? And what was the Lord seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in spirit, in, in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of his youth. So God designed marriage as a kind of, of portrait, gifted and empowered by the joining of his spirit so that his image would be echoing, not just for the sake of compliment and unity and faithfulness. He explains unity and faithfulness in this language of, of covenant. And what's the purpose? All for the producing of offspring who are godly. Motir goes on to say, well, before I mention that, uh, it's easy to think that this fruitful multiplication was just simply about numbers. It was never really just about numbers. God wanted his people to bear his image more deeply. So this godly offspring concept. Then Motir says that the Old Testament defines marriage as a covenant and even uses the illustration of the Lord's covenant with, with his people. And so in this way, the seventh commandment reflects the divine nature the marriage intention reflected in the image of God, and that is meant, I wonder if it does, to help strengthen your understanding of what marriage actually is so that the relationship between a husband and a wife is actually meant to give reflection to the image of God. And the failure to embrace this unity and faithfulness picture is, 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 is a departure from the image of God. In Christ, you and I must promote a heart of faithfulness and purity, marriage intention. Now we are going to move to the idle distortion. So you've got complement or fit. You've got unity and faithfulness, which is covenant. If you have any one of those, but not all of them, you do not have anything but a distortion of God's design. So let's start by talking about what it is that constitutes a violation of this commandment and then why it's a violation. So adultery is obviously primarily what is pictured here. But adultery is not only physical, it can also be emotional, unfaithfulness to the vows of marriage. Many people who wouldn't ever tumble off the cliff physically have done so emotionally. Uh, Jesus will say something about that in just a moment. Additionally, it's worth noticing marriage is not actually defined by your culture. It's not what culture thinks marriage is, it's actually defined by God. And so your world tells you that, that love and commitment is what makes for a marriage. Any two who really love each other, who really do commit to each other, well, if you're just willing to be exclusive, then that's marriage. Men with men, women with women. And in one sense, you can appreciate that as image bearers of God, they have in them some sense of, of unity and, and faithfulness. But the fit... The complement does not work. Nor does the fit and complement have the capacity to procreate. The Bible says that marriage is more than unity and faithfulness. It must be the complement physically in order to have the capacity to fulfill the creation mandate that they may be fruitful and multiply. It doesn't mean that God gives every married couple children. But it means that the fit is meant to tell the story that we are creating a godly offspring to continue not only to advance the image, but also to expand it with glory and depth. 
Homosexual behavior distorts God's picture. Uh, Moreover, so does any sex outside the bonds of marriage. It's called adultery, and it violates the commandment. So an unmarried couple might engage in the physical act. The bodies fit together. It is pleasurable. But outside marriage, there is no concept of unity and faithfulness. There's, there's certainly a, an aroma of both. It smells or sounds similar. It's a fleeting aroma. But without a marriage covenant, without a monogamous, lifelong commitment, you have nothing to carry the emotional weight of this one, fe- one flesh union. And so in God's design, a man and a woman become physically naked after they become emotionally naked. After they've gotten to know each other, after they've joined together before God and these witnesses in lifelong union. Another way of saying the exact same thing is to say that marriage is the only vessel capable of carrying the weight of the physical, emotional, spiritual promises which are involved in sex. Today, people are deeply scared of being emotionally known. Physically known, well, that's fine. Emotionally known, I don't know. Most people, even in the Bible Belt, would say, well, to say I love you, I mean, that's deeply intimate. But maybe it's risky to have sex with them. Well, that's really not quite such a big deal. It's a heresy, and it's a heresy as old as time. As if you could separate the body and the soul. All sex outside of marriage is adultery. Why? Well, because that person that you are having sex with is not your husband and not your wife. You might justify it by saying, well, we're going to get married eventually. And certainly lots of troubled Marriages have begun under that guilt. Statistically speaking, those who have sex outside of marriage are more likely having sex with someone else's spouse. Because more often than not, you're actually not marrying them. And so if you are young and single, it might be helpful to know that in a room this size, there would be many married husbands, many married wives who know and grieve that someone had their spouse before they ever had the opportunity to enjoy them inside the bonds of marriage. When you're young, you have absolutely no idea that there's emotional scars, and you certainly have no idea that those emotional scars last a long, long time time to connect this commandment to the one we studied last week I suspect lots of married men and women have committed murder in their hearts simply by pondering some teenager who years ago stole something that really rightfully belonged to them it's that other woman other man concept which also makes pornography adultery that's not your wife on the screen 
Well, even if you lie to yourself and say, well, it's really not that big a deal. Everybody does that. Christians, you are not going to be able to tell a godly woman or a godly husband, well, I don't know. Lots of people were doing it. They will not see your unfaithfulness as anything other than your heart and your body joined to another person. Not only do you have no unity and faithfulness, you have no covenant. You have no possibility of procreation. And so pornography twists human beings into objects. And it invites you to have sex with someone who is not your spouse. Jesus says that the tendency of the heart is to think according to the low bar. Well, I haven't committed adultery. And then he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, naturally, because Jesus is, is addressing lustful thoughts towards women, it's easy to presume that, that lust and adultery are simply a male temptation. But Jesus' point is really that adultery is always a matter of the heart. And it can happen physically, or it can happen emotionally. It's one thing to recognize physical beauty. That is not sin. It's no sin to recognize that person has pretty eyes, that person has a a pretty smile. That hair looks nice. Y'all are thinking that, aren't you? No. It's one thing to look at beauty. The term that Jesus uses for lustful intent is a term that speaks of something really different. It's an external recognition that there is something of of desire, of longing, of coveting, of lingering. You can long and linger and desire at a physical level. You can also do it at an emotional level. So what if someone else's spouse seems to understand you better than your own or laughs at your jokes, encourages you and builds you up? Well, he or she is not yours. The opening illustration of the sermon reminds us that people don't just fall into adultery. It happens by many small decisions of unguarded heart as they walk closer and closer to the edge. Now, all of these are distortions of God's marriage intention. And each of them is, in a sense, a violation or an attack against the image of God. Distortions of unfaithfulness and purity constitute violations of this commandment. But let's ask a question slightly further. What is behind all of this? C.S. Lewis offers a, a suggestion in Mere Christianity. If you haven't read Mere Christianity, I would encourage you uh, to, to pick it up. If you haven't read it in a long time, I'd encourage you to go back to it. I was surprised again to see something I hadn't seen in years. The chapters on sexual morality, Christian marriage are really extremely helpful. He's pretty blunt. He says that concerning the Christian ethic on sex, he says sex inside marriage, it's a rigid rule. It's so rigid that either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it is now has gone wrong. One or the other. He gave this illustration in the early 1940s. The book was published in 1952. He says, 
You could imagine getting a large audience into a room for a striptease act, that is to watch a girl who undresses on stage. Now suppose that you were to go to another country and you were to go to a theater wherein they brought forth a covered dish, a plate, and then as the music played and the lights began to dim, somebody lifted up the cover on the plate to expose a mutton chop or a piece of bacon. He says, you'd think that something was off in their appetite for food. And then he says, of course, you might conclude that in a culture like that, that would be a result of starvation. And Lewis acknowledges certainly that's a possibility. The only way to prove that would be to determine whether or not uh, the people were eating. Likewise, he translates that into this relationship, and he says, the only way to prove if starvation was the problem in our culture is to recognize that, that in a context wherein striptease and pornography and all of that is, is common, is there more abstinence because of that gorging? And the answer is obviously no. Lewis says, everyone knows that the sexual appetite, like all other appetites, grows by indulgence. Starving men may think much of food, but so do gluttons, the gorged as well as the famished. Is it fair to say that you have grown up in a culture which is gorged on sex? Sure. Here's what happens. When any of our God-given desires and appetites are gorged, your perspective on those things changes so that they move from ordinary things to ultimate things. So for many, sex has been distorted to a place of being an idol. From God's intended design as a good gift meant to be enjoyed in the context of one man and one woman, and we've elevated it to a place of an idol, we apply God-like hopes, God-like promises, God-like expectations, God-like demands to sex. Somewhere in our heads, we think, well, to be served physically, to be known emotionally, to be held closely, that will give me what my soul deeply longs for. Here's what happens. When you squeeze the creation gifts, hoping that they will give you what the creator alone can give you, you find yourself disappointed. And that will result in this. You will either get angry at others or you will get angry at God. But it was your own idolatry that got you to this place. You thought that sex, either more of it or the right kind, or maybe just simply having it in the God-given context, would satisfy fully. Friends, your longings are God-given. They are good and right. They cannot be met by anything but Christ. If you belong to Christ by faith, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and He summons you to promote a heart of faithfulness and purity. Marriage intention, idol distortion. We close with the idol remedy. 
Given the, the complexity and the perversion of God's gift, I, I could understand, you could too. If somebody read something like this or heard this and concluded, well, this is not worth it at all, too much confusion, too much perversion, too much pain, and you might say, well, how could I avoid all of that? One pastor said that we should expect confusion and misunderstanding and perversion and sadly pain, not because sex and marriage are bad or not worth the trouble, but precisely because they are such good gifts. God's good gifts are the very ones that are most apt to be twisted and perverted by the world, the flesh, my own heart, and the devil. The other wrong application would be to take this on the other end. You can accept that marriage and sex are good gifts given to you by God. But since you have only seen and heard those things as glimpses from a distance, you make this your laser focus. My heart becomes obsessed. I've got to find the right guy. I've got to find the right girl. And I'm going to capture what I hope will ultimately become for me life. So that it would be easy to make an obsession out of the concept of marriage or the concept of sex. How do you get your mind and your heart to a place of actually promoting faithfulness and purity? What is the idol's remedy? It is simply to remember your place in the desert and to remember the person of Christ. Place in the desert. I think if you walk through the book of Exodus, you come to the Ten Commandments. You realize, don't you, that for 19 chapters we moved at a fairly rapid pace. You come to the Ten Commandments, and it feels as though we've taken out a magnifying glass. We've begun to walk very slowly. And you start to examine each of those Ten Commandments methodically, and you sort of forget where we are. And it's helpful to, to, to ask the camera lens to come up and to look at this picture. Where are the people of Israel at this moment? They're in the desert. They have already been freed from slavery in Egypt. But they are not yet in the promised land. Why are they in the desert? They're in the desert to learn to trust the Lord in the desert. When they can't see all of his provision. How's he going to supply my need? I don't know. It's dry. It's hot. I'm thirsty. Here's what happened to them. Here's what happens to us. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, your journey through this life is akin to life in a desert. You have already been freed from your sin. You are in process of moving toward the promised land. And where they struggled is where you and I easily struggle. They don't have any place in our heart for a room or space for pain. And so we, what we learn to do is grab idols in order to comfort our pain, to soothe it. Everyone who exercises knows that pain is actually the place where growth occurs. It's that way spiritually as well. So what do you do when life feels painful in the desert? You can reach for idols, short-circuit the, the process of, of growth, or you can do what the people of Israel so rarely did. Remember your place in the desert. Of course it's dry. Of course it's hot. 
this is not my home. And remembering your place in the desert causes you to cry out to the Lord, Father, I am confronted again with the sting of someone else's sin against me or the guilt and the shame of my own sin caused on others. Father, would you teach me to trust you when life is dry and dull and fearful and stressful? And would you supply all of my needs? Would you remember that it's the Lord who brought them to the desert? That it's the Lord who brought you to the desert? And he says, I didn't bring you to the desert to kill you. I brought you to the desert to speak to you. To teach you to learn to trust me. What is the idle remedy? It's to remember first your place in the desert. Secondly, to remember the person of Christ. The purpose of this sermon, the purpose of every sermon, is that you might see God's word and learn to come fleeing to Christ. Some are here today in the midst of temptation, and your heart is calloused, and you know that. And you need to hear very seriously the conviction of the word of Christ today. The path to marital infidelity is a warning sign. Every sexual distortion is a path that begins with idolatry. It's littered with unchecked emotions. It's littered with unguarded heart and refusal to repent. It's, a, it's riddled with an unwillingness to take the kind of drastic measures to stop your slide. The fact that your friends are stuck in the same patterns. It just doesn't excuse your desperate need to get out of it. Get out quickly. Hear the conviction of Christ. Some are hurt through a, a spouse or a loved one. You've seen the, the painful effects of sexual distortion. For you, I wonder if you could hear the voice of Christ as comforter. His love is the only love that can ever meet you in that place of pain and provide the kind of balm and healing that your soul so desperately needs. And Jesus is a faithful husband. He's a faithful father. He's a faithful brother. Christ can never be unfaithful to you. Others here are broken by your own sin. And perhaps you constantly feel the pain of regret. Hear the voice of Christ. Your failure does not nullify the wonder of Christ. If anything, it highlights it. Well, I don't know if you remember, but in the Bible, adultery is really the picture that God often uses. You think of the prophet Hosea. He uses this picture of adultery to explain the unfaithfulness of his people towards him. And here we are confronted with our own unfaithfulness. Because you see, if adultery is a picture of unfaithfulness, I'm guilty. You are guilty. The Lord's the faithful husband. He has been faithful to you. And so it doesn't matter whether you're hurting or tempted or broken and sorrowful. His faithfulness is the invitation to your healing. 
His faithfulness is what's pictured in this Lord's Supper. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us through it. We pray that you would quiet and calm and comfort our hearts. Help us draw near to you. For you and you alone are a faithful God. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.